Welcome to the Spartan Spirit podcast, where we take a stoic, pragmatic, and nation-first view of policies and practices that are not in Western society's best interests. I'm your host, Bill Karalakis. I'm a retired senior Royal Australian Air Force officer, and today we are talking about strategic competition in Antarctica. As always on the Spartan Spirit, I'm presenting you with my opinion, which I base on relevant research, balanced information sources, and a Spartan mindset. My aim is to awaken the Spartan spirit in you so that you can play your part in challenging and correcting policies and practices that weaken the West, even if all that means is that you talk to your friends about what you heard here today. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. I first set foot in a polar region of our planet in 1990 when I flew to Canada's most northerly inhabited community called Alert. It's a military surveillance station, and during my military career, I flew to Alerts and many other places in northern Canada and Greenland several dozen times. As for the other side of the planet, I was fortunate to be able to make a trip to Antarctica in an Australian Air Force C-17 that was doing a resupply run to Wilkinson Aerodrome, which services Australia's Casey Research Facility. Both of the polar regions are being contested by the nations of the world because they are rich in untapped resources. This includes much activity by strategic foes of the West, China and Russia. Although the issues are somewhat similar in the North and South Poles, the two regions are managed quite differently, and today we're going to focus on the issues affecting Antarctica. I'll do that by giving you a brief description and history of Antarctica, followed by a snapshot of the treaty under which it's managed, and how various nations are positioning themselves in Antarctica. We'll finish with some considerations about the West's approach to Antarctica and what would be best for the West. Antarctica is the landmass that straddles the South Pole. It's almost twice the area of Australia, or the continental USA. It's roughly circular with a large peninsula that juts out towards South America. It's almost entirely covered by a layer of ice that averages 2 kilometers in thickness. There is some exposed land along some of the shoreline. No humans lived there until modern times, but remarkably, it has some lichen, moss, and small forms of life, marine life, along with seals and penguins that live across both the land and in the surrounding seas. Temperatures average minus 10 to minus 60 Celsius, depending on what part we're talking about, and precipitation averages about 15 centimeters a year, or 6 inches a year, which makes it a desert. It's also the windiest place on Earth. And there are about 5,000 people working there, with the population fluctuating depending on the season. In terms of distance from other countries, the straight line distance to some of the nearer countries are 2,100 nautical miles or about 4,000 kilometers to South Africa. Tasmania, Australia, and the South Island of New Zealand are both around 1,350 nautical miles or 2,500 kilometers away. And both Chile and Argentina are about 450 nautical miles or 830 kilometers from that peninsula that I mentioned earlier. Let's look at the history now. Although Polynesian folklore and early European explorers probably saw ice from Antarctica, it wasn't until about 1820 that Antarctica was actually sighted by someone that lived to tell the tale. 
Soon afterwards, the first forays towards Antarctica were in search of seal skins. Whaling was also extensive, with some estimates saying 3 million whales were killed between the 1800s and around 1960. From the late 1800s to the end of World War I, several expeditions visited Antarctica, with many of them seeking the South Magnetic Pole and others vying to reach the geographic South Pole. Norwegian Roald Amundsen was the first to reach the South Pole on the 14th of December, 1911. While others were racing for the pole, people like Australia's geologist Douglas Mawson were exploring it, and he covered 6,000 kilometers of Antarctica, making early recordings of scientific data. Between the two world wars, aircraft surveying took place, with a few countries vying to map and claim much of Antarctica. After World War II, exploration resumed in earnest. In 1946, the United States Navy staged Operation High Jump to explore Antarctica, It was a large expedition that included 13 ships, 23 aircraft, and about 5,000 people. It was an early indication that the U.S. was taking Antarctica seriously. In the 1950s, attempts were made to cross the continent, and England succeeded in getting one of its teams across in the late 1950s. Interest and competition in Antarctica bloomed during the International Geophysical Year from mid-1957 to mid-1958, when 12 countries built about 50 research stations in Antarctica and began to settle the issue of how to manage Antarctica through a treaty. The Antarctic Treaty was negotiated in 1959 and came into effect in 1961. After a few years of tense negotiations, it was signed by Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Of these, Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway, and the United Kingdom claimed territories while the others reserved the right to make a future claim. That treaty set aside Antarctica as a scientific preserve with freedom of scientific investigation, and it banned all military activity on the continent. It made no formal recognition of claims and allowed for freedom of movement so long as these principles of the treaty were adhered to. So, for example, anybody could set up a research station anywhere in Antarctica, regardless of the claims, so long as it was scientifically based and not for military purposes. And these principles remain the foundation of the Antarctic Treaty system today. Since then, there have been amendments, largely to do with managing the environment, and there are now 56 signatories on the Antarctic Treaty system, with 29 of those nations having voting rights. Many Antarctica followers believe that the Antarctic Treaty system and the way in which Antarctica has developed means that the continent is an outlier to strategic competition. In other words, it's not being fought over. This is particularly the view held by environmentalists who want to maintain Antarctica's pristine nature and for it to act as an example of how the global commons can work together. Others say this is a naive approach to take, and we're going to explore that today. So that was the background. Now let's talk about what's happening in the modern world. There are somewhere between 50 and 80 research stations in Antarctica, run by about 30 countries. The numbers vary because about half of them are not inhabited year-round and some of them are derelict. With only seven claimant nations, clearly many of these stations are within territories claimed by other nations. We'll now take a quick look at the issues that these nations are dealing with in Antarctica. In general, most nations are focused on environmental stewardship, climate research, and preventing the militarization of Antarctica. 
everything would probably just carry on like that if there wasn't any external pressure. But that's just not the reality. The general fear amongst most Antarctic enthusiasts is that economic potential and exploitation could lead to the militarization of Antarctica, thereby undermining the peaceful cooperation that has been a cornerstone of Antarctic governance. But before we jump to any conclusions, let's look at what the big players have to say about their presence in Antarctica. We'll start with the U.S. The U.S. program policy was established under Eisenhower in the 1950s, and it said that the U.S. recognizes no territorial claims, reserves the rights to participate in future uses of Antarctica, and they did not define what those uses might be, that the U.S. wants to ensure peaceful activities, and facilitate free and open access for scientific investigation. The U.S. maintains a heavy presence in annual operations at three year-round American research stations. These fall under the National Science Foundation, or NSF, and serve as multinational research centers with an array of scientists from all around the world. The U.S. resupplies its bases largely through annual resupply missions, some of it supported by Pacific Command, using military aircraft. U.S. policy is aligned with the Antarctic Treaty System, but the U.S. has also deployed significant dual-use capabilities in the form of communications equipment, GPS ground stations, and large infrastructure. And to be clear, the term dual-use refers to the notion that countries are deploying capabilities to Antarctica that are notionally for scientific purposes, but that could be used by the military. Let's look at what China is doing. China signed up to the Antarctic Treaty System in 1983. It then established its own programs in the mid-1980s and now has five research stations with a large number of personnel. Three of those stations are in Australia's claimed territory. China also maintains an aircraft and two icebreakers in the region servicing their needs, one of which is nuclear-powered. They have also built much infrastructure, including GPS ground stations and satellite communications facilities, very similar to the U.S. and Russia. Being in Australia's region, China operates from Australia to reach Antarctica, and the Chinese sometimes share use of their Antarctic transport assets with Australia. China released a policy on its Antarctic program in 2017, and it's generally aligned with the treaty system, but interestingly, the policy came from within a part of the Chinese government that looks after economics. Since then, China has become involved in all aspects of research, along with investing to ensure China has a strong voice in the future of Antarctic policies, despite not having lodged a claim for territory. Of great interest to many is the building of a permanent runway in Australian territory at the Zhongshan Antarctic Station, which is very close to Australia's Davis Station. There have been some signs of pushback from China on the Antarctic Treaty System and its expectations, but inspections have found nothing overly worrying about these Chinese facilities. The concerns raised in the media, and often cited by anti-Chinese websites such as from Forbes, Say things like, in 2018, China started building their fifth Antarctic research station without submitting the required environmental evaluation. China proposed the establishment of a small air defense identification zone around China's Kunlun Station, which is in the Australian claimed territory. There have been supposedly some inspection violations, in other words, not fully complying with the treaty. Although not an issue now, where there's smoke, there's fire, and maybe the West would do well to keep better track of Chinese intentions and aspirations and behaviors in Antarctica. China is also very active in krill fishing in Antarctic waters, and it's building the largest krill fishing vessel in the world. 
By the way, there's a cap on how much krill can be harvested, and at the moment, Norway takes most of it. But this may shift with the arrival of China's new ship. There's also a raging debate about just how much krill we should be taking from Antarctica, particularly because it's the main food source for whales. At the end of the day, China looks at Antarctica with an eye to the future, and they're preparing themselves for the day when resources can be exploited more fully. Let's look now at Russia. Russia built its first Antarctic station in the mid-1950s and now has 10 stations there, some of which are decrepit and others extensive, including one with a runway. The stations are spread across a number of the claimed territories. Russia operates into Antarctica from South Africa, and in 2022, an IL-76, which is a heavy transport aircraft, landed on an ice runway in Antarctica thereby demonstrating Russia's ability to operate with heavy airlift into Antarctica. Russia issued a policy document in 2010 titled A Strategy for the Development of Russian Federation Activities in the Antarctic Through 2020 and Beyond, and it had three stated aims, ensuring national security, facilitating economic development by using the region's natural resources, and enhancing Russia's international prestige. Their policy was updated in 2021 and had a similar emphasis. And in recent years, Russia has carried out a number of geological and seismological surveys to give Russia a better understanding of the offshore hydrocarbon potential along with mineral potential of Antarctica. And in 2020, Russia was caught illegally fishing krill, but they managed somehow to retain their fishing rights. So to summarize what the three big powers are doing... All three major powers are basically positioning themselves for future claims, and the Chinese and Russian efforts are clearly hinting at a time when the gloves will come off regarding resource exploitation. I think it's worth mentioning what some of the other G20 nations are doing. France maintains two stations year-round. Both are relatively small. England has two stations on Antarctica and three on its periphery. Of these, four are year-round, and one of them is substantial, including a permanent runway with aircraft hangars. Their stated aim is to, quote, sustain an active and influential presence in Antarctica on behalf of the United Kingdom government, end quote. Australia has a large claim, almost half of Antarctica, believe it or not. It operates three year-round stations on continental Antarctica, Interestingly, Australia issued a strategy document in 2016 calling for a permanent runway in Antarctica. In 2018, it committed to building the first paved runway in Antarctica and began assessments to figure out the path forward for that runway. In late 2021, due to pressure from environmentalists and projected cost blowouts over what was looking to be a 20-year build program, the project was cancelled. In its place, the government announced investment in drones and helicopters for exploration. Seems like a bit of a sad substitute in my view. This was a blown strategic moment. Australia has been hard over on being the good guy and pushing for environmentalism and science as the mainstay of its Antarctic policy. The runway was a method by which Australia could have staked a better claim for its share of Antarctica, but instead... It took a short-term view, acquiescing to poll-driven politics, and cancelled the project. Australia's position on that runway is actually reflective of how many countries look at Antarctica. It's difficult to work down there. It's costly. And so choices have to be made. And we're going to talk a bit more about where those choices should be focused in just a few minutes. 
so let's take stock now. We have many countries active in Antarctica, most of which are abiding by the rules of the Antarctic Treaty System, but it's clear that many are positioning themselves to have a strong foothold in Antarctica for 2049 when the treaty system is up for renewal. Indeed, Antarctic expert Elizabeth Buchanan of Deakin University said, quote, An uptick in gray zone activity has allowed states to further their own strategic ambitions under the guise of cooperation and adherence to international rules, end quote. So when she says gray zone activity, she's talking about actions and capabilities whose intent is unclear and could be for future exploitation or military purposes, in other words, not in accordance with the Antarctic Treaty System. Put more simply, don't be surprised if China and Russia make demands in 2049 that aren't aligned with the principles that underpin the Antarctic Treaty System today. In fact, it would be foolish to anticipate anything else. Where does this leave the West? The Antarctic Treaty System has no enforcement mechanisms. With no policing and no military presence, the West can only lean on economic measures and negotiation when it comes to dealing with violations of the Antarctic Treaty System. And if in 2049 that treaty system falls apart, then there will not be any system at all to manage resource exploitation or the militarization of Antarctica. When you consider the infrastructure, policy statements, and activities of Russia and China, I liken this situation to what's happened in the South China Sea. The West is watching the Chinese expand and take over in Antarctica, and they're doing nothing about it. By the time the West wants to counter this expansion, it'll be way too difficult to reverse, as it is in the South China Sea. And this is where the West should take a page from China's activity in the South China Sea. In that region, the Chinese are in their own backyard. They have ports, they have airfields, they have the infrastructure. Antarctica is in the West's backyard because Australia and New Zealand are close enough to be a launch pad for greater investment and activity in Antarctica, while China and Russia don't have those dedicated bases nearby. If the West wants a piece of the action in Antarctica in the future, then it needs to get on the front foot and build year-round permanent paved airfields with the infrastructure and supplies needed to field a force that can enforce its will on the continent. I'm not saying we need to deploy troops there, yet, but prudence requires that we prepare for the day when China and Russia stop abiding by the Antarctic Treaty System, or worse, that they deploy troops first. If the West keeps its collective heads in the sand, we will once again be caught playing catch-up, something that is happening too often these days, as the West has been putting too much faith in international law, the United Nations, and the global commons. It's time to fight fire with fire. That's what's best for the West. Although thinking like this is not commonplace, there are some corners in the U.S. espousing the need for a stronger approach to Antarctica. The following quote comes from a paper written by Professor Ryan Bork of the U.S. Air Force Academy. It is imperative that the United States and allies prepare to defend and deter the exploitation of the Poles from revisionist states attempting to expand their influence and power. With extreme climates at each pole, the American military must have the right equipment, for example, icebreaker ships, training, for example, cold-weather military exercises, and strategy, for example, American political willpower, to diplomatically and militarily fight for each region. 
Without such resolve, China and Russia will rapidly establish an advantage in each poll. If the West loses its foothold, there will be no leverage in negotiating settlements and treaties that are a win-win for all near-polar countries that seek a rules-based order. End quote. I think he's right. And even if the U.S. doesn't go all in like this, I reckon the U.S. will probably maintain its fair share of Antarctica, but smaller Western countries like Australia, New Zealand, France, maybe even the United Kingdom, will be blindsided when China demands a piece of their claims. And what are those countries going to do about it? Nothing if you haven't prepared for that day, because China already has the infrastructure there to hold whatever ground they want, and the same goes for Russia. The West is asleep at the wheel here. And if you care about the West's ability to compete on the global market, then you'll set aside any naive notion you have that Antarctica is going to escape that competition. I hope that when your government talks about spending a few billion on airfields and infrastructure in Antarctica, that you will support them. And ideally, you'll also support more dual-use gray zone activities, perhaps including military exercises in Antarctica. Because if the West doesn't do that, well, then you can only blame yourself for giving Antarctica over to the authoritarian regimes of this world. It's time to get behind the notion that Antarctica is up for competition and pretending that it's just a big science experiment is foolish. And so it's time the West took a pragmatic approach to how we control our claims in Antarctica. And that's what's best for the West. Each week, I identify someone with a Spartan spirit relative to the topic of the week. This week, it's Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, who is an expert on polar regions and active in a range of high-profile institutions such as West Point, Australia National University, the European Union, the Royal Navy, there's a bunch more. She spoke at the Royal Australian Navy's 2022 Sea Power Conference, and she made the following comments about the future of Antarctic strategic competition, which I have reordered a little bit to tell a tale. So this is a series of quotes that I'm about to give you. With 70% of the Earth's freshwater hydrocarbons and clear shots to space on offer in Antarctica, as well as a southern ocean rich in vast krill and fishery stocks, we can't deny Antarctica is a prized bounty. The mere continued functioning of the Antarctic Treaty System is not an efficient way to measure Antarctic geopolitical health. Subversion, deception, and sophisticated interpretations of international legal norms in Antarctica are the hallmarks of the Antarctic Treaty System. We need to recognize and grasp the coercive elements of Antarctic cooperation and the entrenched nature of gray zone activities. Given recent Pacific developments and the trajectory of Beijing, we need to consider seriously a national Antarctic policy. We need to show up and show up with credibility because presence is influence and influence is power in the Antarctic context. Perhaps the biggest strategic mistake Australia made was the nixing of a year-round ice-free paved runway. Even our like-minded states are already, and still, building runway infrastructure on Antarctica. Meanwhile, the Australian Navy has not one ice-hardened vessel, and not since the 1980s has defense policy highlighted the national interest of our sovereign territorial claim. Are we to find ourselves in a few decades wondering how we lost Antarctica? End quote. So, Elizabeth was not espousing a military solution. But the conclusions are obvious. 
To get what's best for the West in Antarctica, Western nations need a united strategic policy that sets aside the short-term environmental concerns that permeate our thinking to enable infrastructure development, including dual-use facilities with military potential, so that in the long run, we keep Chinese and Russian ambitions in check. That will only happen through force and presence, not by being penguin huggers and using hope as our grand strategy. I trust Elizabeth will keep up her fight for a more pragmatic approach to managing the polar regions, and I hope that you will support your government when they wake up and realize we need to do that. That's all from me for this week. Next week, we're going to look at the issue of gender and drug use in sports. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help me spread the message of what's best for the West if you tell a friend, post a link to it in your Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever you use, and give the podcast a rating. You can find the references I use today on the podcast notes page of my website, spartanspirit.au. That's all one word, Spartan Spirit. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.